from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. At that time, Jesus came to Jericho and then attended to pass through the town. Now a man there named Zacchaeus, who was the chief tax collector and also a wealthy man, was seeking to see who Jesus was. But he could not see him because of the crowd, for he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When he reached the place, Jesus looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down quickly, for today I must stay at your house. And he came down quickly and received him with joy. When they all saw this, they began to grumble, saying, He's gone to stay at the house of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I shall give to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I shall repay it four times over. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a descendant of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what is lost. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. How many... Big cities are there that are identified by some visual historical landmark. For example, when people hear New York City, they often think of the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building. Paris, the Eiffel Tower is almost the city's logo. Well, for San Francisco, it's probably going to be the Golden Gate Bridge, that amazing structure, one of the longest suspension bridges in the world that connects the city to the rest of California. Sadly, the Golden Gate Bridge also holds another distinction. More people have committed suicide there than at any other place in the United States or the rest of the world for that matter. Well, back on September 25th of 2000, a 19-year-old man by the name of John Kevin Hines was a freshman in college. Over the years that he had been growing up, he had battled mental depression and had been on a bunch of different medications. But that fall morning, nothing seemed right. Something was very horribly wrong in his mind. The voices in his head were getting louder and stronger to him, convincing him that he had to take his life. So he kissed his father on the cheek, got on a local bus, and headed to the bridge with plans to end it all. And as he sat on the bus and was crying, he promised himself that if anyone asked him what was wrong, he would not go through with it. And the entire bus ride, no one did. So he got to the bridge and walked to the midway point where he stood, staring down for 40 minutes. Out of nowhere, this woman approached him, and as he turned, she asked, can you take my picture? He took five snapshots with the, the camera that she had handed him and gave the camera back to her as tears continued to stream down his face, at which point she turned 
and walked away. And with that, he took a few steps back, rushed the railing, and threw himself over. It's horrendous, isn't it, just to think that this this nameless tourist got her picture, got what she needed or wanted, and, and couldn't be bothered to ask, are you okay? All that could have prevented him from making this leap was someone reaching out to ask him what was the matter, or more importantly, to say to him that he mattered. Because at that that low point of his life, he was so isolated and felt so hopeless, he didn't believe that to be the case. How many people in our world suffer from that kind of hopelessness? How many people do we know who feel hopeless? Or maybe even how many of us do? Statistics and reports and stories all over the place talk of skyrocketing suicide rates, deaths from drug and alcohol abuse, all that seem to point to an epidemic of hopelessness in our world. Researchers keep pointing out that this is perhaps the first time in history where the economy is doing pretty well, the unemployment rates are at historic lows, which are usually the two usual main causes for severe stress and depression, but there's been this major uptick in mental health and stress affecting ever-increasing numbers of people. Even for high school and college students, researchers point out academic pressure isn't considered as much a contributing factor today as surveys show that most students today spend far less time doing homework now than they did 20 or 30 years ago. So what's the reason for this hopelessness? Many experts also point to the rise in smartphones and social media, which has resulted in less interpersonal relationships and less authentic friendships, which I'm sure there's a lot of truth to that. But I can't help but think another factor has been a greater number of people who claim not to be Christian anymore. And that's not to blame those who feel disconnected. If anything, that's an indictment on the church. It's our failure to share the joy of the gospel as we've been maybe hamstrung by horrific stories of abuse and scandals and cover-ups or being distracted by stupid political fights within the church that are started by a small minority with some other agenda other than sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of hope. All have a major part in this epidemic of hopelessness, and that needs to convict us, because too many people have not heard that they have a God who loves them, a Heavenly Father who loves us into existence, who sustains us each and every moment of each and every moment. A father who sent his son Jesus here among us so that God would have a face and a name that we can approach and that we can know and that we can touch and we can get so intimately close that we receive his very body and blood in the Eucharist. Too many people don't know that and don't know him. Too many people like John Kevin Hines, that young man on the Golden Gate Bridge, don't think, don't feel, don't believe that they matter and are hopeless. In this gospel we just heard, that was Zacchaeus' experience as well. Zacchaeus is the ultimate of outcasts. 
He's a chief tax collector. So he's the epitome of a traitor. He's working with the enemy, the Romans who've occupied his fellow Jews. He's collecting taxes from them, and then he charges them extra for himself. So to put it mildly, Zacchaeus' fellow Jews are not quite big fans of his. The Romans, meanwhile, they're happy to use the guy. I mean, he's getting the job done for them, but he's not one of them either. He's not a Roman, so it's not like he's getting invited to any Roman dinner parties. Even St. Luke, the gospel writer who's sharing the story, doesn't sound like he's a big fan of his either. He could have just set up the story that Zacchaeus wasn't able to to see Jesus, so he runs ahead and climbs the tree, adding that he's short in stature, Seems kind of harsh. It seems like an unnecessary detail. So Zacchaeus is in complete isolation and he knew it. Zacchaeus probably had resigned himself that for the rest of his life that was going to be it. He was going to be known as the outcast, as the reprobate. But something within him makes him step out of that, that limited and diminished existence. He's out there in the midst of these crowds who know him and are not happy to see him. So much so that they're not even going to let the little guy get up close to see Jesus. Perhaps even shooting him some nasty looks as he's trying. But something deep within Zacchaeus calls him to open his heart. To look for something, for someone that can restore his hope. To tell him that he matters. That anyone might care about him. He's got nothing to lose at this point, so he climbs the street thinking that perhaps he'll hear or maybe see something that will do something, anything for him. And the gospel puts it so so gently. Jesus looked up. And what does Jesus see? He sees the, the loneliness, the brokenness in that man in the tree. He sees the lengths that Zacchaeus went through just to see him. He sees Zacchaeus in all humility looking, looking for hope, looking for Jesus. And Jesus says to Zacchaeus, come down quickly, for today I must stay at your house. With Jesus inviting himself over to dinner, with Jesus saying, I desire to be with you. He's saying, I want to enter into your loneliness, into your brokenness. I want to go to your home for things to change. Zacchaeus is being offered a radical new life. He wasn't being seen just as a short guy or a wealthy man. He wasn't being seen through the lens of others in the crowd as a a traitor or as a puppet of Rome. Jesus looked at him right there, right as he was, in the midst of all of his mess, with love. And that look of love from Jesus made all the difference. It restores his hope. Zacchaeus, who had given up everything in the pursuit of riches and power, does a 180-degree turn and now promises to give all that up just because of this one encounter with Jesus. The lengths that Zacchaeus had had gone through all up until that moment, just on that one day to see Jesus, is going to be incredibly insignificant in comparison to the lengths he's going to go to now, now that he has met Jesus. John Kevin Hines, that fateful morning of the Golden Gate Bridge, sadly no one reached out to him. He never heard the words he longed for from his fellow passengers or from the tourist who was more interested in his taking her picture. But we know all that because he miraculously survived. 
He's one of only less than two dozen individuals who've ever survived such a suicide attempt. And it's changed his life. As he talks about how the darkness had enfolded him, driving him to jump, he says almost immediately he regretted what he had done and was crying out, I don't want to die. He hit the water at 75 miles per hour, yet somehow never lost consciousness. As he tried to swim to the surface, he realized his his legs were numb and useless. He couldn't stay afloat, and then suddenly he felt a large sea animal that was brushing against him. So now his fear was great. I jump off a bridge, somehow I survive, and now a shark has come to eat me. Well, witnesses would later report that it was a sea lion that was nudging him to the surface. Eventually, the Coast Guard came and picked him out of the water, rushed him to a hospital, and he had multiple injuries and would continue to fight to survive over the next 24 hours and then weeks and weeks of recovery after that. But praise God, he did. And he shares his story and says, I thank God that I lived. And one regular visitor that I had was a Franciscan monk. And as we talked, he suggested that I was spared for a reason, to tell my story, maybe to help put an end to almost 70 years of preventable deaths off of that bridge. So that's what he's doing. He works with the foundation trying to raise awareness about the problem of this bridge. He goes to schools where he tells his story and he counsels at-risk youth. His life has been forever changed as God revealed a new plan from that moment on. Yes, we see a, a lot of hopelessness in the world around us. And maybe we even suppress some of those thoughts and feelings within ourselves. When we struggle at work or in our classes, when there's difficulties at home, when illness or death takes a loved one from us. And we feel like no one knows and no one understands and no one is listening. But the beauty of this gospel story and the beauty of our faith in Jesus Christ is that we know that's not true. Being here today, we remind ourselves that our stories are not fixed or finished. We have a God who loves us. And we don't have to give in to the lies that others say about us or that we tell ourselves. Lies that we're not good enough or holy enough or worthy enough to be in Jesus' presence. The reality is that Jesus is searching for us waiting to gaze on us with his eyes to tell us that we do matter, that we are loved. Despite how trapped we think we are by the poor decisions we've made, despite the prisons we find ourselves confined to because of whatever mistakes we kept letting define us and weigh us down, Jesus offers us true freedom when we lift up our downcast eyes and look to him. When we stop listening to the devil's insistence that our past is our present and future. And here Jesus offering us his love and his mercy and calling us to change our lives here and now by becoming loving and merciful ourselves. C.S. Lewis is one of the, the greatest of contemporary Christian writers. And he talks beautifully about what happens when Jesus invites himself in, not just for Zacchaeus, but for every one of us. And he writes, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. 
And at first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needing doing so, you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that is hurtful and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building you into a palace that he intends to come and live in himself. May Zacchaeus prompt in us a desire to let him, to let Jesus enter in, to make us bold and not let anything prevent us from seeing Jesus, to make us humble and let Jesus look at us as we are, to make us courageous and to let that look of love transform our lives. Also that you and I can be examples and witnesses that testify to the world of the true hope that is found in being loved by Jesus. Pray for our beloved relatives and friends and all of our brothers and sisters. 